Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. You'll be hard-pressed to find a more eclectic resume than Ryan Ladisa's. Ryan has worked in broadcast, out-of-home, digital, programmatic, and creative. He's worked for agencies, big corporate conglomerates, and specialized ad tech veterans. He slung media space, sold cross-platform solutions, led departments hunting for the latest innovations, and helped innovative companies find their foothold in the Canadian market. And we can also add entrepreneur to the list. Ryan was Freshie franchisee number one. This was back when Freshie was known by its former name, Lettuce Eatery. Ryan Ladisa stops by to chat about growing up in Toronto, studying creative advertising at Seneca College, and his extensive media career that spans both the agency and vendor side of the business. Dax is an unbiased audio platform serving inventory across streaming music, podcasts, audio and articles, and soon to be released audio and gaming. We're a huge scale partner in the marketplace in Canada. We also have businesses in the US and in the UK. We're corporately owned by Global, uh, who's a huge radio player in the UK and Europe, and a substantial out-of-home player in the market as well. All right, Ryan, let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I am born and raised in Toronto. Went to uh, school in, in Scarborough, East York, uh, and then uh, went to Seneca College and decided early on that uh, advertising was my um, passion from a career perspective. And uh, so embarked on the ad industry after working uh, at, at numerous jobs in, in the service industry and uh, in all kinds of retail. And uh, that's led me to the position I'm in now. Did you guys just stay in one place in the GTA or did you guys move around as well? I bought my first home close to where I grew up uh, in the latter part of my life in East York. Uh, I lived uh, in, a, in an enclosed uh, neighborhood called Parkview Hills, uh, largely surrounded by a lot of my high school friends. Stayed there for about 10 years. Halfway through that, met my wife shared some time uh, in a condo that she had in Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. Uh, and then um, our my primary residence uh, eventually became our matrimonial home and that's where we had our first son. Shortly after having our son, we moved to uh, where I reside now in uh, North Toronto at uh, Shepherd and Leslie. Growing up, you had a number of interests and hobbies. One thing that caught my eye though was Motorized vehicles. You didn't say cars. Why in particular motorized vehicles? Were you also a motorcycle fan? Yeah, I was selective about my words when speaking about motorized vehicles because uh, I got the bug really early reflecting back on. We were fortunate enough to uh, have a cottage. My parents got divorced really early in my life. And so I I spent a lot of my summers with my dad at his uh, cottage. I also had a cottage on my mom's side, my, my grandparents. Uh, on my mom's side, had a cottage, various cottages actually in uh, the Quarthas. But my dad's cottage was, uh, it still is on Lake Simcoe. And I had various dirt bikes and uh, a tinner aluminum boat uh, before um, I got into, eventually got my license and 
three months before I was uh, 16, I started taking driver training uh, with the anticipation of the um, independence that getting my license would bring. And then uh, was fortunate to uh, have a car purchased uh, for me by my dad uh, with the uh, agreement that uh, I would have to take care of it. Um, and, and that's basically what I worked for. I lived for that uh, Jeep, um, worked in my, in my part-time jobs, various jobs to pay for gas and insurance and operate the vehicle. And that was one of the earliest um, instances of me being fully responsible for something. And then I you know, my dad was in the car industry, my uh, grandfather uh, on my mom's side, uh, my Guyanese grandfather was a mechanic by trade and he was in the Navy and uh, in very mechanically inclined. And so from all angles, really, uh, when my dad uh, immigrated here from Argentina, eventually after Italy, when he came here at 16, um, about, I don't know, maybe five years after that, he landed a job at uh, Ford, and then he spent his entire career uh, managing parts departments at various Ford dealerships. So I was a dealership rat. I would go in and I would uh, count inventory with him all the time. Uh, so I was happily around uh, combustion engines and um, involving myself in them. We've had projects from as early as I can remember, starting with probably a 1947 uh, Ford pickup truck that uh, my dad had acquired and and we were set to restore together. Was it one of those bubble ones, kind of the precursor to the F-150? Very round shape. You know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it, was a, it was a precursor to that truck, probably the truck that you're thinking. You're probably referencing uh, 1953 to 56 Ford F-100, which was absolutely the precursor to the Ford F-150. That car that truck uh is is still on my bucket list there's been a couple of times where i've tried to acquire one uh and my uh, better judgment has has gotten a hold <laughs> i haven't uh but i'm still after it and and i'm not calling it out yet you're a ford family then ford has part of my my heart um i don't own uh any ford vehicles right now i i do own a chevy vehicle uh it's my father's 1971 uh, Stingray Corvette that I have in the garage. Uh, oh, geez, that is a beauty. Yeah, after sleeping uh, for 28 years, I decided to uh, take it out of my uh, nonna's uh, garage, actually secretly uh, one winter, and uh, and take it to a friend of mine's shop, um, tow it, tow it there, uh, all in anticipation to gift it back to my dad uh, with some some service work um, and the ability to drive it uh, at on on January 8th on his birthday. He shares the same birthday as as Elvis did, uh, as did his father as well, my grandfather. And so um, we it, it quickly became apparent that we were going to miss that date. And so I eventually gave it to him for uh, for Father's Day. Uh, I picked him up. We went to a Paul Simon concert down at the Air Canada Center. And then, um, and then he gifted me the car right back. So it's been oh, my trust ever since. And your family, you you cite them as being the biggest influences in your life. Absolutely, no doubt. I uh, I I grew up with, you know, in a in a very uh, Brady Bunch esque household. My my Guyanese grandparents uh, were were always there every day. 
my my grandparents were super active. My my grandfather uh, still may have a plaque in the Pickering Recreation Complex for uh, going to the gym every day when he was 88 up until uh, he passed. Uh, but they were very much a, a significant part of my life. And then when I uh, moved with my Italian grandparents uh, at a, in and around uh, 13, 14 and, and uh, lived with them in uh, East York, uh, I would obviously see them every day as well. So significantly influenced by uh, my family on, on all levels, for sure. Would you say that your first job, I guess the first job where you got a T4 slip and a proper paycheck and deductions was at McDonald's? I think it was at McDonald's. It was either at McDonald's or like Food City. I always ran with a couple of jobs uh, and I would work, uh, I would work them a couple of days a week. Uh, I remember kind of lying about my age. Um, I, I think it was my birthday that I lied about. So I stressed um, I stretched the truth a little bit uh, to um, move, you know, five, six months in my favor. And I was working at McDonald's at 13, uh, if not just slightly before that. So it was at Pape McDonald's, Pape and Cosburn, still there. Uh, I was super embarrassed because I worked in the back and uh, all my friends would come in at, uh, you know, at, at, at 11 o'clock at midnight after school dances and when they were running around on the street. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was kind of short lived. I think it finally, uh, my, my time there came to its demise after about six months, right when they started to charge us for meals, because back then, you know, they had like the McDLT, we used to make up our own, you know, chicken Big Macs and whatnot. <laughs> and then, and then they started charging us 50% for food. And so, um, I think if I remember correctly, minimum wage was about $3.65 there. So charging half a rate for uh, a combo meal uh, was still quite expensive and, and kind of, um, you know, did away with an hour's worth of wage. So that was enough for me to leave and, and move on. Did you find the working world stressful at McDonald's? Because fast food can be very unforgiving. I didn't find it too stressful. I was able to manage the the grills and and do that comfortably. I I always most often found myself wanting more, especially when working in retail environments. I remember early on, uh, you know, I had other stints at, at Collegiate Sports, and I would I worked the dairy at Food City at Maine and Danforth, and I I just usually wanted more. I wanted more access to to, to more departments, more hours, uh, probably trying to get uh, a higher wage um, and and open things up, you know, to to my favor a little bit more. So of those three jobs you just mentioned, McDonald's, Food City and Khalid, because they're all very different. I mean, you've got fast food, you've got grocery and then you've got standard mall retail. Which one which one did you enjoy the most? I have to say from a friendship standpoint, Food City was incredible. You know, everybody was young. We had a great time. Uh, I was, I recently told a story about the fact that we used to cook lobsters and garlic butter in the bread ovens. <laughs> That's you, you awesome. Just, yeah, you just don't get times like that anymore. You know, egg fights in the, in the dairy freezer, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was a pretty awesome time in my life. Uh, then, you know, 
working at Fairview at Collegiate Sports, which is no longer there, this was a big store. It was like a two-story store. I was working. Oh, I remember Collegiate Sports. Yeah, they were a big deal. Did did Sportcheck acquire them or at least acquire their space? They did. I think they were uh, still running in in Montreal and in uh, French-speaking Canada uh, for for a while. Um, at, at, with sports experts under the sports experts uh, moniker, but I think um, for Zanny or uh, Sports Check um, in in one of their iterations bought Collegiate Sports, and that was the end of them. But that store at Fairview had to um, had to have closed about twenty five years ago now, and and now it's 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 funny because the irony is that I live within walking distance to Fairview Mall, so. Uh, a lot of nostalgia there for me. Okay, so nothing in your early, early job career suggests getting into advertising. So, what brought you towards creative advertising, and why did you pick Seneca College? Funny story. Uh, I um, applied to three universities. I applied to Ryerson, uh, UFT, and York, uh, and I really didn't want to go to York because back then, like every one of my friends was going to York, and it was just going to be a continuation of my high school. And so that's really not what I was after. Okay, Start can I stop here. you right there? Why, why didn't you want that continuation? Because when I was going to university, that was something that was attractive to me as well, as going out and doing something different. But I had a lot of friends that wanted to stay together at a lot of the big schools and kind of continue what they had done in high school rather than hit the reboot button and start again making new friends. I guess it's a good question. I guess... Because I had moved around a lot when I was a kid, my mom was in real estate, as I stated, my parents were divorced. So, you know, I, I had a great relationship in both uh, situations when I lived with my mom and my dad, uh, step parents involved and a lot of love. Um, but I did feel uh, darkness when, particularly when moving from uh, Durham uh, from Pickering to East York, I, I felt this uh, dark cloud of, um, you know, city kind of, um, you know, passing my time in the city. And it was very different. You know, they're, they're, you move from bush parties and, and, and having a lot of organic fun, making your own fun in, in Pickering to uh, weapons at school and, and, and big uh, fights and, and all kinds of stuff that happened uh, in East York. And, and so I think that that world was was bestowed upon me uh, in East York. And although I, I always had a great circle of friends, many who, of whom I, I still see today uh, and call some of my best friends, uh, I, I was really looking for a change at the end of high school because uh, I was looking to maybe create my own identity and, and not you know, just kind of lean on on this identity that I had created out of uh, circumstance. Do you think that helped you in your sales career, though? Because if you think about it, sales, we have to go around and we have to make friends with people. That's exactly what we do. And if you're consciously going to a new school where none of your friends are, you don't have that clique to, you know, fall back on. So you are starting from scratch. And if you I mean, if you want to have friends and socialize, you've got to put your hand out and introduce yourself. It may be an aspect of it. it I, I've never looked at it that way before, but, you know, we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, at our, at our place in our careers, we're kind of this culmination of, uh, you know, where we found comfort and, and leading into our uh, skill sets. Um, I think that 
You may be right. You know, I remember my mom, uh, when I was still living with my mom, her closing the door after we moved to, you know, kicking me outside, telling me to move away from the television and go outside. It's a beautiful day. Go out and play. And, uh, and me just sitting on the door and uh, on the doorstep and always wondering why she was forcing me out of the house. Like she's always seemed to be having this conversation with me about go out and make friends, go out and make friends. And often I remember resisting it, but somewhere down, down the line, uh, I, I found some comfort in, in making friends and kind of asserting myself into, uh, in, into situations and, uh, and, and I probably benefited from it because now I, I love it. I love that aspect of our business. I love the social side. So you're probably on to something. So going back to the original question, York, U of T and Ryerson were all on your radar. You wanted to pass on York for reasons we already discussed. What about U of T and Ryerson? And then how did you venture away from those two towards Seneca and creative advertising? I thought U of T was a little too academic for my liking. Uh, it was also a little far uh, for, for me to commute every day. Um, and, uh, and, and I just didn't feel it was the vibe that I wanted to uh, pursue. And so uh, ignorantly, I uh, thought that I would get my way as I usually uh, had in life. And, uh, and, and I, you know, threw caution to the wind and I went to Europe for the summer uh, without having my admittance to Ryerson. Uh, yet. And uh, I just thought I was going to get in. You know, back then, Ryerson was a shiny new school. It was focused on uh, radio and television arts. Um, and uh, it, it was the place to be for me, at least. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, when I uh, came back from, from Greece after spending a, a great time with, with my friends, um, I found out that I, I got a rejection letter and, it, and I was put on a waiting list for Ryerson. So I had nowhere to go. And so I called Seneca College and I uh, got a hold of administration and told a little white lie through my teeth. And I told them that I was on the waiting list and that uh, they had told me that if I called back, um, you know, on the 6th of September, at that point, classes already started, by the way, by a day or two, uh, that they would, uh, you know, have an answer for me as to how I, as to whether or not I could uh, enroll and, and, um, and join them for, for my studies. And so the receptionist said, um, the administration uh, clerk said, well, if you can bring your money tomorrow, I'll tell you what, I'll let you in. And that was the end of that. I brought my money in. <laughs> I, I, I attended Seneca. Uh, it, it was great, actually. It worked out because it was a joint uh, accreditation program between um, you could do two years and get a college degree, or you could do four and get a combo uh, university and college degree. Uh, I ended up not um, pursuing the, the university uh, degree, but um, completed the creative studies course at Seneca and was off to the races. And those races brought you back into the food service industry, but this kind of served as a gateway into advertising. So after graduation, why did you go back into the restaurant business and why Gretzky's? I was always working in restaurants because in and around when I was about 20 years old, uh, I had a girlfriend 
who was 18 probably, and she went to Unionville High School. So I was, she was my girlfriend for a long time. Uh, we were really close. Uh, I was close with her family, et cetera. So I would go pick her up often after school. And so I stumbled into, I figured, why don't I get a job up there? So my first job in uh, Markham, Richmond Hill was uh, at White Rose at, at Highway, uh, on Young Street, just north of Highway 16. You were cleaning craft supplies? Manager. What's that? White Rose? Isn't that the craft store? Exactly. There you, you go. You were slinging craft supplies. Jeez, that in collegiate sleeping. sports. This is nostalgic. It was it was pretty it was awesome. So that that job uh w was a favorite of mine because uh I was driving uh for numerous reasons, but anyways, I ended up getting uh my girlfriend a job there at the time as well, but uh, the the part that I loved about that job is I I grew to manage the yard and so uh, I would be driving the forklift and I would unload uh, tractor trailers of, of trees and whatnot and organize them. And I, it was great. It was great to be working outside and it, it was a, a great time, you know, selling Christmas trees uh, to people um, in, in the winter months. It was altogether just a blast. Uh, then the time came where uh, I was outgrowing that job. As I mentioned earlier, it, it, uh, it, it tended to happen to me. It, it got the better of me eventually. So I saw that there was a Lone Star opening up right on the corner of uh, 16th and Young. I didn't know anything about the restaurant, um, but I knew that uh, they were opening up. It, it looked pretty um, exciting. You know, it was a new concept that was coming to uh, Canada. I, I thought that they had another location as well. Uh, so I, I applied there. I got a job as a busboy and then quickly set my sights on uh, serving. So after that, uh, I became a server at Lone Star. Uh, <laughs> another funny story. Uh, there were a lot of rules of, at Lone Star. So they would make you white, wear like white shoes that couldn't have any branding. Like you couldn't wear white Converse because if they had a red stripe around the sole, like you, they would just get... Uh, outlawed and so really strict dress code uh, which was kind of waning on me and then the final straw came to uh, bear when the manager pulled us in for a pre-shift meeting and he told us that uh, on that night at 6 30 and at 8 30 at two different times we are to break within our sections and we're going to go into line dance formation and it didn't matter what you were doing we were to put on a show for the restaurant in the middle of the dining room and line dance for like whatever, a song or two. And I asked him if he was serious. He said yes. And I handed him my, my apron. And then I went down the street, uh, got a job at Jack Astor's. That was way, way more fun. That was the spot to be at uh, East Beaver Creek. Um, they were on a four hour wait, that restaurant. And we were sending people to Rocky Mountain High well, uh, to wait for their tables, uh, and that was just a, a whole other level. Um, so I served there for four years. I probably worked at Jack Astor's. It was amazing, uh, much different than it is now. Uh, earlier on in its infancy, just I think it was just acquired by uh, Sir Corp at that time. Uh, before that, it was run as an independent chain of very successful restaurants. I had a, the best... Uh, general manager ever, Ann John is her name. 
Uh, shout out to Ann John. I, I would love to see her today. She's she's an awesome human being. And then uh, after that uh, time elapsed, uh, I moved down to uh, Wayne Gretzky's restaurant and worked there for another four years. And so how did that factor into you getting into advertising? Because wasn't there a meeting through someone who worked there or one of the customers there who brought you to uh, Kathy Quinton? Yeah, so Kathy Quinton, uh, blast from the past. I was getting pretty distraught at this point. I was getting frustrated because uh, it was six months post my studies. Uh, and again, I was getting that feeling that uh, discomfort uh, around the collar that uh, I, I better get moving. And I had an ambition to do more with my life uh, and felt uh, I woke up one December morning and I felt really trapped primarily because of the curator at Wayne Gretzky's at the time had told me and him and one other um, older individual told me at that time that they're just here for a short time. They're working on their masters and. And uh, they're going to be gone after that, and they were still there, you know, years later. And so I said, this is going to be me. And and really, uh, I, I may have been OK with that, but the part that I wasn't OK with was when you're serving you're working when other people are off. And so that was a huge problem to me because one of these individuals had children and they were, you know, also pretty expressive about the fact that it interfered in their time spent with their children. So uh, because they had to go to work at, uh, during evenings and whatnot as well. So uh, this was really the problem that I was trying to solve. Uh, combined with the fact that I wanted to get started on my career. And so I reached out to Tim at the time, this family friend who introduced me to Kathy Quinton, his girlfriend. And uh, I, in the meantime, I put my resume together and I was, you know, interviewing at a bunch of places. Kathy quickly um, gave me an opportunity where she said, you know, if you, I'll bring you into Western Digital Media, Western International Media, sorry. And uh, if you can um, give me a year's worth of service, you know, you can come on board and uh, and enjoy your time here and, and learn the advertising business, media business. And I started two weeks later, I think it was December 21st. Uh, and it was a great gig. And you started on a juggernaut of a client. What was it, Disney Home? I started on a slew of clients, you know, the... First couple of days, they parked me beside Jeff Thibodeau. Uh, Jeff Thibodeau, uh, who's of course uh, an industry icon, uh, as as president of a, a division of Publicis, they uh, parked me beside Jeff and uh, said, "You know, Jeff, you're uh, you know the best we got. Can can you train this individual uh, who is completely green?" Uh, in in advertising and media buying and reconciliation, so he parked. They parked me beside Jeff and uh, to stare at a literally a black screen because at that point we were working on MS DOS, and so oh, I, had, I had MS DOS and uh, flashing cursor and uh, Excel spreadsheets and some some printouts to to look th uh, through as well as a. Um, the, the rate card book, what was that uh, card? The, yep, the, card. The advertising rates and data on online. 
weren't spreadsheets on DOS brutal? Like, weren't you were you using an old version of WordPerfect or the WordPerfect suite? It was it was awful. I was using an old an old version of WordPerfect. It's funny. I after that, after I worked on that uh, portfolio of clients, I eventually uh, got tapped by Amanda Plowman at the time, who was a VP on Disney Disney Home Video, uh, specifically because Carrie Heard managed the uh, the Disney theatrical business. And so Amanda asked me if, if I wanted to come and work for her on uh, Disney home video. And this was of course a super attractive position. I mean, how do you get bigger of a brand than, than Disney to work on? Uh, at that point we were sharing time between uh, the office at 175 Bloor street East uh, and um, down at 121 Simcoe and, and, the Disney offices were on the 29th floor. Everybody had a, a, a an emulated desk uh, uh, of Walt's original desk of his drafting table. Uh, all the door handles were uh, Mickey ears. They actually had a, a licensing vault with product in it, and and it was uh, it was pretty sexy. So I was having a good time. Jesus, that's a far cry from where we work. That's for sure. It is. It is. It's it's a very uh, far cry from where we work. It was it was a spectacular office. They literally had a, a Mickey portal uh, porthole. Sorry, um, when you when you came into the reception. So, so at that time, Disney had four production offices worldwide. Uh, one of them was in Toronto. One of them was in Tokyo, etc. So their offices were you know fully decked out. Um, and uh, a great place to work. I actually had to, uh, whenever we were hosting clients or guests in the boardroom, I actually had to get into a habit of uh, putting my back towards the lake because, of course, uh, it was a clear shot to uh, to the lake because you overshot the convention center and there was nothing else there. At this point, there were no condos, etc. And on a clear day, you could see Niagara Falls, so it was pretty appealing. Okay, so everything's going pretty well then with your agency career, and then you decide to make the jump to sales. So I guess my two questions are, why Astral Media and why pivot into sales? I always had a desire to get into sales. I thought it would be a good place for me to be, and I'll never forget that I was uh, working for Disney, and the thing about Disney, it was a time when many of us wanted to work for the brands that we wanted to work for. We wanted to work for Nike or CTV or Disney or whoever. But, you know, being early on in our career, we weren't getting compensated in the way that that um, we that would that would line up to, I think, how we perceived those positions to be. You know, you uh, I that is a very diplomatic way of putting it. Yeah, I at least thought that you know, oh, great, I'll go work at Nike. It'll be great. They'll give me shoes and I'll get to, you know, ha- be involved in decision-making and I'll, you know, grow to be uh, an executive and I'll be compensated in that way, et cetera. But very much, um, very different, actually, than how it happens now in a career trajectory standpoint because uh, nowadays um, individuals, you know, stay uh, for a year or two uh, two is is a pretty long time uh, before asking for um, additional remuneration or uh, a position increase or even jumping for ten thousand dollars. Back then, it was like a unwritten rule that uh, and and any mentor or friend would tell you that like 
yeah, you don't move for like $10,000. You know, your happiness is way uh, more valuable than that. And, and even reflecting back on that, like I started in the industry for $18,000. And so uh, when I finished working four and a half years later at Disney, I was making uh, distinctly, I remember I was making $44,000. And it was at one point where my CBS out of home company uh, representative gave me her uh, her family tickets uh, because her her husband was um, the 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 chair of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, so they had Leafs tickets. So they gave me um, four tickets to the Leafs game, and I looked at her and I said, I looked at the tickets and I said, "Are you serious?" And she said, "Yeah, these are our personal tickets. Like, take all four. And I looked down at the tickets, and they were three hundred and fifty dollars uh, a pop. And so I I took three friends we had a great time it was like center ice platinums like 12 rows up behind the bench um great time but what i was reflecting on after the game immediately was the fact that i could never afford these tickets they're like you know the night was like two thousand dollars uh there's no way i could spend that much money on on hosting my friends uh and it and i wanted to start to make those decisions um, to be able to take uh, my girlfriend or, or friends out uh, and, and experience that on my own, under my own uh, dime. And so that's what really immediately drove me at that point to uh, turn the page on Disney after all of the you know, great experiences I had with them, together with one other aspect that uh, I'm leaving out that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then I had a, a plethora of options to, to go from because... Um, to call upon because when working for Disney and buying media for Disney, we had an abundance of cash for each plan. So, you know, if we're launching Toy Story 2, we might have two million, a $2 million budget to um, amortize over uh, a six-week flight. So it was a lot of money. Conversely, uh, I remember working on IMAX and trying to uh, manage a $400,000 budget for the entire year across 11 films. So, and appease all of the different theaters, which were geographically far from each other. So, you know, so it was, uh, so I, I eventually uh, reached out to Peter Bartram at the time, who was running Astral Out of Home. Uh, they were um, coincidentally looking to shift the uh, Dorval and Mirabelle Montreal uh, out of home airport, uh, out of home representation from Montreal to Toronto because they believed that 80% of the blue chip clients uh, were bought out of Toronto and that happened to be the case and so uh, I joined that team to sell Mirabelle and Dorval uh, airport uh, advertising uh, out of the Toronto market for a year and a half until September 11th. And what happened after that like I imagine that had a massive impact on your business. September 11th, on the day I was in uh, Mount Tremblant in a all-staff conference with my Astral team. Uh, it was being presented in French. Uh, I, after tiring of hearing the entire lecture in French and picking up on probably 60% of uh, what they were saying, um, I decided to go to the, to the washroom for a second and leave the conference room and go out for some fresh air. 
at this point, there was a 13 inch tube television in the lobby, just kind of like beside some, you know, cigar chairs in the lobby uh, lounge. And there was probably 40 people around this little 13 inch uh, tube television, some of whom were crying when when I walked out of the conference room. And so I quickly came to terms with the fact that one plane had hit the first building at that point, and there was another plane in the air, and it looked like it was going to hit the second uh, building. Uh, my colleague, uh, Joe Back, uh, his brother-in-law uh, was on the 84th floor of the second building. He was crying profusely. I immediately started calling uh, car rental companies because I had to drive him back to Toronto so that he could con console uh, his sister and his wife and and everyone that was involved with this tragedy. Um, rental cars were sold out. We eventually, you know, I eventually drove him back, um, got pulled over for speeding. The police officer let us off because of everything that we were going through. And then uh, after that, air traffic uh, travel, air, air travel uh, went from res very respectable numbers to zero literally zero people believed that uh, teleconferencing was the way to the future uh, as far as business travel was concerned um, and uh, and and you know VPs of media and the clients that that I were calling for uh, these blue chip clients were literally telling me they were swearing at me telling me that I'm unethical and and how could I be selling airport advertising uh, in this um, circumstance. And so uh, I left probably four or five weeks after that. Jesus. Well, that was a wow. I mean, everyone's got a story about how it impacts them, but my God, how it impacted you both personally and professionally simultaneously. And then after how people were coming after you saying, how can you be trying to sell airport advertising? Because you're just doing your job at this point. Like you're not being insensitive. You're still trying to keep a roof over your head. So you said you made the decision to leave um, about four or five weeks after that, and then you landed at Alliance Atlantis. And so tell us what attracted you to going to Alliance Atlantis. And you made a really big pivot here because we're talking about going from agency life to out-of-home media, and now you're going to be an integrated rep. So I imagine this was broadcast at the center of it, but what other platforms were pulled in? Yeah, great, uh, great segue. So uh, at the time, it was a division called... Um, I don't think it was called Synergy yet. I think it was called Marketing Solutions um, uh, or, or Integrated Marketing. And so I, I went to um, interview with Alliance Atlantis. I, I interviewed at that time with uh, Brian Press, Errol DeRay, and Brad Aulis, who were the three most senior executives. Prior to that, uh, the job was to report into Nancy Stern, who was like the VP of uh, integrated uh, programs. And so really at that point, it was about um, building microsites, uh, contests, uh, assembling uh, components of um, integrated marketing campaigns and selling them through to clients and then and then fulfilling and, and delivering on uh, all of those components. And so uh, early on, you know, it was things like uh, Debbie Travis's show, um, calling uh, Ketley T and selling them into a created spot for them where uh, I budgeted for the production and 
and and brought on the clients, uh, hired talent, etc., and uh, and and managed that whole presentation, uh, the, the the fulfillment of the spot, the creation of the spot, the put it together and and ran a campaign uh, tied to media weight, uh, perhaps with a contest, uh, etc., and so. Uh, that took me that that kind of unlocked uh, the creative side of my brain. It was really, I guess, the reason why I gravitated towards that because was because uh, earlier on, um, one aspect that I that I didn't talk about was when I came out of Seneca, I had a portfolio, and I was lucky enough to get some face time with Jeffrey Roche, uh, who was you know iconic at the time in our industry. Uh, it was at Young and Eglinton. I went to his office, and uh, and I showed him my portfolio. And he said, "Well, this is great. What do you what do you want to do with your career?" And so I said, "I want to be a creative suit." And he and he looked at my portfolio, went through it. He literally like took a sharpie and kind of crossed stuff out. He said, "You know, extract this, extract this, extract this." And he said, "Come back when your portfolio is tightened." And he said, "As per this, like." creative suit this this role doesn't exist in our industry so give your head a shake and when you come back with your with your you know revised portfolio come back with a refreshed idea of where you want to go in your career and, and I'll see if I can help you out needless to say I was distraught uh, it didn't last long I was distraught for a day uh, but I thought hard uh, about what he said and at that point I, I challenged him because uh, his thinking because uh, I believe that um, the future was going to have an opportunity for uh, creative suits or creative salespeople and that kind of I guess opened my thinking to uh, Alliance Atlantis uh, in that integrated programs role and and it really stuck with me throughout my uh, throughout the entirety of my career. When you got into this creative role, how did you find the process of putting together one of those pitches and seeing it through like the integrated pitch or the product placement or the custom spot that you cited versus something that was a lot more transactional back at Astral where it's like, we have the real estate already. Here's what the specs are. Take it or leave it or move on to the move on to the next client because I've worked on both sides like you have. And my God, when you get into the creative side of the business and you're dealing with all the different variables, it can be incredibly stressful. I, I mean, I call I kind of call it a cold shower the first time, but you need a cold shower after you go through your first pitch and get your first campaign sorted. Do you find it stressful? Indeed, I did. I think you hit the the nail on the head with that. So many things were stressful about that side of the business. You There's so many elements that you couldn't have answers to that you had to improvise and answer on the on the fly then stretch mold into a solution that you believed uh, would fit both you know the client objectives your corporate objectives the budget all kinds of things so yeah it, it, it i remember it being hugely uh, stressful together with the fact that you know you're printing out 80 page colored decks on like uh <laughs> yes you know, on, on a on a small printer it's taking you like four hours to print five decks uh and then you know you can get something wrong and so you have to do all of that uh work as well so the technology definitely wasn't uh where we needed it to be uh it was very piecemealed um but 
to get the creative juices flowing and the reward was was uh was was more valuable than than the risk and and pain points to get there see the reward you hit the nail on the head with that one because unlike transactional media where if you call up a website and you go oh that big box i sold it that's not as impressive to I guess friends and family that aren't in the industry then pointing out something that's on television or product integration and program going that's there because of me or a contest put together from start to uh, from start to finish. You're completely accurate in that. You know, I remember to towards my I, I moved through about four or five positions with with uh, Disney Home Video, and I moved from you know when I started I was uh, assembling radio programs and and calling up. Uh, DJs or radio hosts in um, in uh, Red Deer uh, and and giving them a script to give away uh, ten early copies of uh, the Avengers or uh, or, or whatever um, show we were we were promoting whatever film we were promoting and then you know it grew to one of the last programs I did there where I met Heather Gordon and Randy Moskoff and Jessica Edwards and a bunch of people were. Uh, that are still uh, friends of mine in the industry, uh, Heather, who I now compete against in in audio, um, but but still a good friend, uh, was a Gone in sixty seconds program where you know we enlisted like Rick the Temp and and much music, and we did a nationwide uh, VJ search, uh, and we were going to award this individual with not only a contract to be a much music VJ, but uh, we were going to give them a brand new Mustang and some cash and all kinds of stuff to celebrate the launch of this film. And if you think back to some of the earlier things that we discussed about my personal interests um, tied to cars, uh, you would know that uh, I, I, I was a fan of um, Gone in 60 Seconds very much so, not not for the acting, but for the uh, <laughs> nostalgia that the that the film featured. And so just bridging those worlds and getting to do that. And you're right, you hit it right on, you know, with conveying that to your friends or family, or even to yourself that uh, you had a, you know, a small part to do with uh, putting all of that together and executing it uh, was really a huge reward. Okay. Have you seen the old gone in 60 seconds? The original? I I have. Okay, not to get sidetracked, but have you ever read up on the behind the scenes of the massive chasing at the end revolving around, I don't even know if they call it Eleanor. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but but basically the Mustang. No, the bullet. The, the fastback. It was the bullet, yes. The bullet Mustang. Yeah. Apparently, they did not have permits to film. So what they used to do is send crew guys ahead, and the guys would just kind of go out there and stop traffic, radio to the stunt driver, and the stunt driver would blow through the intersection. The cameraman would already be there capturing it, and they'd all pile into the car before anyone was, you know, wise to what was happening and go on to the next spot. It's brilliant. I, I love stories like that. Unlike what we've got now where everything's very polished, usually usually done on a green screen. Sorry, I'm just getting sidetracked because we don't make movies like that anymore. No, we definitely don't. And, you know, that's that was an era of uh, Steve McQueen and, and Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and, you know, Paul Newman, we got to throw Paul Newman. If we're talking about Paul car guys, Newman, Paul Newman's got to be in sure. there. James for Gardner sure. as well. We got we got winnings. We've got Grand Prix in there. You've got Lamar, a lot of great, and gone in sixty seconds, like you mentioned, a lot of great car films in there. I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting point to bring up. You know, I just heard that uh, Paul Newman's original Daytona 
uh, race-winning Daytona that has it etched on the back. Uh, his his Rolex uh, sold at auction, I think it was two years ago, for $17 million. And oh, jeez. So now his family has found two more uh, conveniently. Uh, and his wife is like, <laughs> wow, geez, if I knew that, you know, his memorabilia, his personal items would sell for that much money, then, uh, you know, here, you can lean into my whole drawer of sunglasses and Rolexes and whatnot. So there's two other watches that have just surfaced. Uh, same, similar watches, uh, Daytona Rolexes. Um, and they're not going to command the same um, value. But uh, getting back to my point, I, you know, this was because um, people were authentic, you know, and there were and, and they were they did the unthinkable. They did the they accomplished the unimaginable, um, did their own stunts. Uh, and, and now it's um, easier to do that. You know, there's there's benefits to that because access to content creation is definitely uh, never been easier at this point. But um, there's something to be said for that old nostalgic, uh, gritty one one time to film it um, scenarios as well so what brought you back to out of home and and astral as well because after doing everything you had done to indulge your creative side for nine years at alliance atlantis it was kind of a bit of a homecoming or i guess i would even say an unexpected homecoming interesting thing so my tenure at alliance atlantis was almost evenly divided between uh what we'll call uh, marketing solutions um, and a straight, um, you know, dollar a holler uh, TV spots. And, and, you know, I don't mean to uh, diminish that responsibility of broadcast salespeople. And so I won't, but a, a lot of high volume contracts, you know, locking yourself in an office, uh, working through 171 a wreck at Ben Keyser orders, and it's just like, you know, putting, uh, allocating commercial airtime into uh, shows is not as uh, creative as, as the other side, where I spent uh, the earlier half of my career. But going into that, uh, Brian Press, uh, I'll never forget this, uh, said to me, he said, I almost don't want to give you this role because you're going to be bored moving into broadcast sales is not going to be good for you. And I said, I have a feeling that you're right, but I have to do it for my career. I want to understand how to manage like a big territory, high scale, um, high volume territory. And so I went to do that. But then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the Ken West uh, acquisition, a, a lot changed. Uh, it got, the, the job got more monotonous. Uh, we, we were in a situation where we kind of had a reverse takeover. You know, we, we grew that Alliance Atlantis business from $29 million when I started to uh, $245 million. Hardly anyone left. We went on a bunch of sales incentive trips and we were a tight-knit tight group. And so when the smaller uh, CanWest Global bought us, uh, it, changes, it changed the entire culture of our organization. And so I stayed on for a year after that. And then eventually said, uh, I, I have to go kind of explore uh, other aspects of, of this business and, and move on. So in between that time, when I was looking to leave uh, Alliance Atlantis, when I was at 121 Bloor and, and go back to uh, figure out what else I was going to do, uh, I, about two years prior, through a, a friend of ours, 
uh, I had asked Matthew Corin, the founder of Lettuce Eatery uh, at the time, which is now Freshie, uh, if he was interested. I went to go speak to him at the uh, Bloor location, which was seeing two hour lineups every lunch. And I wanted, I asked him if he would, uh, I asked him about his story to success and how he created this brand. And I asked him if he was interested in franchising. He said, no, not at the time, but give me your number and uh, I'll give you a call if I, if I do. And so two years later, he gave me a call. Um, I was so impressed that uh, he still had my name and number. I embarked on this journey with him and eventually it led me to, um, creating a business plan and, and uh, becoming the first fresh, uh, first global fr uh, franchisee of Freshie. Uh, and so it was at that point that I remember going back to Astral, and this isn't a knock on Astral, it's just, um, I'll, I'll just say it like it is. I, I decided to um, move forward with, with Freshie and, and um, embark on this business journey and Hopefully that would lead me to having three locations because I had first right of refusal on York University and Yorkdale Food Court. And so I had always planned to open up those three locations uh, and I would go and uh, go back to selling 10 by 20s and transit shelters with uh, and digital boards at the time because they were just being launched at Astral um, for, for two different reasons. One, because it was very familiar to me and I could, uh, I knew that I was good at it. It, it wouldn't have any learning curve and, uh, and, and I was kind of like leaning into the comfort while I moonlit and, and, you know, built out this business and, and managed this business as well uh, for the Freshie location at College Park. And then two, um, secretly, when I, if, if we move all the way back to when I was first at Astral and my first time in sales, I was begging them for the ability to sell murals and 10 by 20s. And at the time, I'm not sure if they had transit shelters, but uh, I wanted to sell the full product portfolio and they would not let me. They kept telling me consistently, Ryan, we need you to focus on airports. And so uh, I secretly wanted access to see what I could do with, with all of those uh, products. And so I went back to sell at... Uh, the, the whole gamut of um, out-of-home products at Astral. Okay, so where did you find the time to balance Astral and being a franchise owner? It was tough. I was uh, dating Josie, my my wife. Uh, now I, I was dating her at the time in a in a uh, you know mid to long term relationship with her. Uh, she was uh, an ex Alliance Atlantis employee as well. Uh, on the operational side and in TV production. And so she was very strong operationally. So um, I had her and, and, and she would run the operational side of the business. She agreed to embark on this journey with me and uh, invest and, and build out this business. And then uh, I, I just straight up moonlit. You know, I, I, uh, I hired a manager. So I always had a general manager at Freshie. We hired an experienced general manager uh, to, to kick things off. And then we moved to an inexperienced, uh, more entrepreneurial uh, manager for the second half of uh, our ownership. And then, you know, they, they managed and, and I managed them. So I had one person to manage and the business. And that included um, inventory and uh, the P&L 
and finances and um, and and stock and all of that and and any problems that arose during the day and uh, Josie helped me manage the books. We had a bookkeeper and so it was busy, but uh, we didn't have any children at that point. So I knew that I wanted to uh, utilize my time effectively, and I didn't care if I had to work till one o'clock in the morning every day. I I could do it. Was it like riding a bike, given your experience in the restaurant business? No, I think that it was uh, like not knowing how to ride a bike and being incredibly frustrated because you were falling off uh, all the time. And you're like, what uh, happened? I know how to ride a bike and why can't I ride a bike anymore? Uh, and, and you know, my, my left foot's just not working. Uh, and, and I say that... Um, you know, because th- there were all kinds of things going on at that point. It was, um, you know, from thinking about uh, with in disbelief as to why uh, we had such uh, a, a loss problem. Um, are, are, you know, are the employees really stealing bags of shrimp or, or frozen salmon pieces? Um, probably they're going somewhere um, to, you know, trying tactics to um, have your friends or family go to the store with uh, with a, a marked uh, $50 bill and seeing if that's in the till at the end of the day, uh, all kinds of problems, you name it. You know, your manager calling in sick, like, what do you do? I'm, I'm an account executive at uh, Astro selling um, billboards and, and my manager called in sick uh, 10 stops down the subway line from me and here it is my uh here is our our, our business floundering uh, at college park uh and and what to do um you know the, the the company used to put ice shielding up every year it decimated our business 40 to 60 percent uh business decline um the g20 summit came into town there were riots they were right in front of my location because the police station was in front of that so they put up if you remember they put up that 20 foot caged uh, fencing. I worked at CBC at that time and we had to work from home because we were going to be inside that cage. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I, I, we literally, our location overlooked the police uh, head office on, on College Street. So all kinds of things, you name it, like things to deal with. It was just incredible. But it, you know, again, taught me how to run a PL. Taught me the nuances of uh, watching, you know, every aspect, line item of a PL because uh, it, it it's also not okay to make you know twenty five percent margins uh, one month and and minus eight the next. It just doesn't work that way. Your time at Rogers, you were the manager of emerging platforms. I've had exposure to people who have those titles or who've done those jobs at other companies, and the consensus I get from speaking with them is is that. It's fun because you get to try the new technology before anyone else, but there's a chance that some stuff will take off. Some stuff is going to flounder and will be forgotten very quickly. But all in all, you're trying to you're trying to do a lot of internal selling to let people know this is a big deal and we need to pay attention to it. Did you find that that was part of your role at Rogers or a challenge that you had? Very much so. So you you put it so eloquently. You know, it um it, my time as manager of emerging platforms for Rap TV, Rogers Any Place TV, which kind of paved the way for Show Me, 
you know, which by the way was the worst acronym ever. I'm sorry. I was at Rogers when they were doing that too. And yeah. it was just like, like any place to like, come on, just give it a better name. Now yeah. we probably call it Rogers plus. Yeah. It was like rap TV. I can't remember what it was before. It was just, it was crazy. There was also Rogers on demand online. I'm just like the acronyms were just way too long. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the fun parts about that responsibility was that I very much worked for an incubator. You know, I, I was, uh, that, um, incubator was stationed out of, uh, 350 Bloor, uh, which was a, a Rogers building that I, I, I think they probably own, but that, you know, Rogers like home, um, and, and alarm kind of, uh, th- those businesses were out of there. Uh, I can't remember what the, uh, home selling app, uh, is, but that bit, that business was out of there. Uh, and then of course, across the street was one Mount Pleasant where all the uh, corporate executives sat. Uh, and Ted and, and Edward sat, uh, as, as did wireless. And then, uh, down the street to, um, or sorry, triple three was, was across the street and then, and then OMP one Mount Pleasant. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I love that I had autonomy, you know, I was, I was an employee of, uh, digital ad sales on loan to the, um, to be the manager of emerging platforms for, uh, David's Purdy, David Purdy's group, who was uh, in charge of uh, content creation, production, and monetization, and so that was really um, the gateway to uh, the Any Place TV incubator. Um, you know, it was run; it was always run by um, some of the brightest minds. Um, consecutively, like four Boston Consultant Group. Uh, um, leaders um, ran that, um, and they've they've since gone on to hold significant posts at at Google and um, global Amazon roles, uh, et cetera. Uh, so really, really smart, talented people. Lara Skripitsky, uh, who is the chief digital officer of McDonald's, uh, technology officer of McDonald's. Um, was my boss for a little bit. And then I also had the flexibility and enjoyment to uh, go back home, so to speak, and be part of uh, digital ad sales as well. So that was great. It was great to have peers and the autonomy as well, which was unusual um, at, at Rogers for sure. How much did that prepare you for your next role in videology? Because here you are, and I, here you are, and this is your very first sales job where you're not working for a big brand, a well-known brand, because this is a company coming over the border and you have to, not only do you have to be a sales leader, but you have to be a bit of a cheerleader for the brand. And you have to kind of warm people up to the videology brand and what you can do. It's funny because just realizing this now, yes, I had the Rogers, you know, big red machine branding behind me when selling any place TV, but that was like a real tough sell. You know, people didn't understand it then. They didn't understand AVOD. Um, the incubator didn't understand that you had to, you know, you needed audiences that were legitimate audiences in order to uh, have something to sell. You know, they just didn't get ad sales and monetization. They were concerned with the uh, carousel of products and how they would show up in front of users and retention and all that stuff. So um, there was a, you know, disconnect there. Uh, but one thing was clear was that I loved video. I just loved the sight, sound, and motion of video. I loved it from Alliance Atlantis. I loved it at Rogers. 
Uh, I loved it at Disney. Uh, and so that was a common thread throughout the entirety of my career. And that led me to this video technology DSP uh, back in 20, 2012, um, when there weren't really any around to compare it to. Like, what is this? Like, explain it to me again. So you're talking about, um, you know, a technology partner that would take all of this uh, anonymized inventory like we were trying to sell and monetize on any place TV uh, and aggregate that, serve that up to advertising agencies and tie data to it and, and decision based on it. Oh, this is pretty cool. So uh, I was attracted to the video side of it and the monetization and the, and the you know, creative adaptation more than I was the technology side. Um, but then um, that pulled me into ad tech and, um, and, and, you know, the rest is history. Well, and your ad tech experience only grew from there. Like what brought you to Gum Gum? Did you find the role or did the role find you? Gum Gum was a company that uh, um, I, the previous leader of the, uh, of the, of the Midwest managing out of Chicago uh, I had some experience with, and he was uh, SPP Neil Ford uh, of the uh, U.S. Midwest and Canada at the time. Him and I had been having conversations earlier on, and he came to me about midway point at, at Videology. And I said, look, Neil, like, I, I would love to come work with you. Uh, I think that you're at a good spot uh, at Gum Gum, but I'm just not uh, finished delivering on uh, on my strategy for videology. I just signed this Group M exclusive video partnership and I was excited to see that through. And uh, then, you know, a couple of years later, I was, um, you know, I, I had completed, delivered on my strategy and and uh, I was I was looking for something new uh, towards the tail end of videology. Videology was running into um, momentum problems. We had done away with our display product, which I didn't really agree with. Um, like, why, why wouldn't you keep that moving? Um, and so we were just running into hiccups. There were technology glitches, product roadmap um, failures. And so it was time to move on. So I had a, a new conversation with uh, Neil Ford. And uh, at that time, timing lined up. I thought that Gum Gum was an incredible tool set with 40 patents in image recognition. Um, you know, and I, and I believed in computer vision and thought that, uh, that, um, it was the future. And from there you moved on to media monks and you were their SVP of growth. Just explain to us what media monks is first and foremost, because I believe you were there. Were you there when it was still called mighty hive or were you there when it was media monks? Cause I know that they did a bit of a rebrand. I think it was during the pandemic or maybe before the pandemic. Yeah, so I joined uh, Media Monks in uh, September of 2020, I think. So you're spot on. It was right in the middle of the pandemic. It was Mighty Hive and Media Monks as two separate entities. The Mighty Hive brand had existed in Canada, and they were a um, data and analytics and, and software solutions company, uh, really focused on um, in-housing for clients and and setting them up for success from a talent perspective and and really kind of um, bringing this new uh, business strategy to the forefront of allowing and enabling brands to um, make these decisions and, and set up these internal divisions uh, themselves and, and help them out with it and, and 
you know, after they were done their um, consultant work, they would kind of move on to the next or, or pick up other uh, projects for these brands. And, and that was their business. Media Monks was an entirely different division. This was like content creation at its uh, at the highest scale, you know, filming the NBA in VR, creating um, Mission Impossible, uh, feature film commercials, all kinds of things, all the way down to um, spots and dots and, and scaling uh, assets at scale for, for some of the world's biggest brands in Nike and, and BMW and whatnot. Really, really interesting company. Uh, I jumped on board as a, um, uh, a senior growth lead in North America. And my job was to, um, as these two brands collided, these two businesses collided, uh, Mighty Hive and, and Media Monks and became, eventually became Media Monks. Um, it was really this fusion of this data and analytics and, and onboarding in-housing business together with uh, assets at, at scale, um, asset management platforms, uh, SEO, SEM solutions, all kinds of things, dams. And really, um, they were embarking on this journey to uh, move forward in one entity that could handle uh, all of your um, solutions from a consultant standpoint. And so we were set out to uh, manage global clients and uh, seek global opportunities and manage those businesses from North America. And so I uh, managed some LG business. Uh, I was part of the team that won and was awarded the uh, Tim Hortons digital business. Um, we, we, I worked on some Canadian Olympic business, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, my time there was short, but it was super fast paced. Uh, and um, and and yeah, we had a, I had a I had a great time with that and learned a ton. How was it being an SVP of a company during the pandemic? Because the, like you said, this was what the fall of 2020. So we were still at a point where there was no vaccine. We were still very paranoid about the effects of COVID. Everyone was paying attention to just the number of hospitalizations, the daily numbers that came up along with the number of deaths. So how did you kind of fit into that role versus say, you know, being a sales leader at a company where you had an office and you went into and got to see your peers on a regular basis. Yeah, it was great. I had some benefits there. Like uh, Tessa, I, I had known uh, for quite some time as being, um, you know, from being a client and friend in, in the industry. We're talking about Tessa uh, Ollendorf. Tessa Ollendorf, who a guest of this the, podcast, the, the managing director. She's a, a, a spectacular person and I've always been a fan. And so she, um, you know, she presented the opportunity for me to come on board. She made things very comfortable. She is a, a leader of her people uh, and exceptional at that. So there was always comfort around that. We were working out of a WeWork space just uh, outside of Liberty Village there. Um, so, you know, we could come and go and, and uh, she made sure that everybody was comfortable uh, in that regard. I didn't have any direct reports and I reported into New York uh, as head of growth. Um, eventually uh, reported into New York. Prior to that, I reported it. My boss was out of uh, Utah, I think, or Nebraska. Um, so I, I never met my bosses beyond uh, Tessa. Uh, had a strong working relationship with, uh, with the team here and really didn't, you know, struggle too much. It was a struggle to drum up business because 
if you remember, I'm working on international brands. So like as part of the LG team, uh, my team members are in Vermont, California, you know, and Brazil, maybe, you know, so so we're we're lining up times to, uh, you know, strategize and get on the get on calls with clients and kind of like uh, develop work for them. And, and some of that was difficult, but uh, all in all. Media Monks does an exceptional job of bringing subject matter experts together, regardless of where they're located uh, and, and, you know, solving for the client in the, in the strongest way possible. And so I, I don't think that that was a problem. I think that it was a benefit from during COVID. And I think it's still uh, a benefit that these new companies, uh, them and some of their competitors uh, have benefited from the, you know, borderless nature of it. Um, today. Okay, so looking back at your career, DAX seemed to be the one area that you had not covered, which is audio. You've got video, you've got, I mean, you've got analog video, or I guess you could say traditional or broadcast versus digital video, programmatic, you've done out of home, creative, transactional media. So what brought you to DAX? Was that a box you were looking to check? I've always looked at my career and especially earlier on as like a trivial pursuit pie. And, you know, I, I got to get green. I don't have green. You know, how am I going to get green? Do I need, can I get orange and then green? Okay, fine. So, uh, and what I mean by that is like, you know, I never wanted to get into a conversation where uh, an employer or potential employer said, you don't have people leadership experience. You don't have P&L experience. You've never opened an office, you, you know, and so, uh, within that came experience in uh, a well-rounded um, uh, plethora of, uh, of media channels as well. And so that really, um, you know, completed my uh, ambition to try something new and be enticed to by the, cre- by the creativity of audio. Like, I love audio. I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an audiophile. Uh, it makes me feel it, it, it boosts my mood. Uh, I intentionally pull myself up or, um, or, or bring myself down. If I want to kind of enter into other states, uh, I amplify my mood through, um, some, some walk on music, if you would, if I'm, I'm looking to, you know, charge myself up. Uh, and it's just a very, um, complimentary medium to, uh, everything that I like about, um, the the uh, the sound and motion aspect of sight sound and motion and I think that uh, I'm enticed by its future um, growth potential um, that it's undoubtedly going to see. Okay, before you go into a big sales pitch or a really big meeting that you're going to be leading, similar to how athletes play songs to get them fired up before a game, is there a song that you play for yourself to get you fired up for the meeting? No, I just I just saw a meme that was pretty funny and pretty accurate for me about that friend that listens to like all uh genres of music that's that's me uh for for good or bad um you know one consistent uh amplification um kind of like personal feeling um playlist that i listen to is the last waltz i just like that compilation of I'm pretty old school in my 
in, in, and nostalgic in my likes in general. Like I, I love cars from the late 60s. Uh, I love music from the late 60s. Uh, my birth year is 74. And so uh, I love music from that era. Um, you know, I, I'm just really drawn to that. And so the last waltz really does it for me. If I'm home alone uh, without the family and I want to blast some tunes, uh, and just kind of feel my way through how I'm feeling or think about something. I, I got to say it's the last waltz that I put on. Okay, well, we're going to learn a little bit more about you. So are you ready for rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Okay, Ryan, the campaign you are most proud of? Probably gone in 60 seconds because now that my son is uh, getting to be uh, into automobilia, uh, I would love to uh, take him through what I um conceptualized and executed for that campaign. It's pretty cool. And he'll get it now at 11. Your favorite movie? True Romance, I gotta say, I feel. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Ralph Macchio, maybe? I don't know. Al Pacino? A younger Al Pacino? My follow-up question to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Down and Out in Beverly Hills is Taken. I, I would have to go with Fast Times Forgotten. Your favorite book? Not getting to do a lot of reading these days, but um, you know, during my time at Disney, uh, I was a huge, huge uh, Bob Iger fan. And so just to see him and, and what he's done, uh, the ride of a lifetime is as something that I'm going to revisit right now. I love that he came back. I'm, I'm rooting for him for sure. Your favorite song? Don't have one. Favorite? No way. Like asking like to pick your favorite child? Yeah, exactly. The best advice you have ever received? Work with your mind and, and not with your hands. That is something that uh, my dad would, would always say to me. But following up with that, I'm so happy to be able to um, be self-sufficient from, you know, not being reliant on, on, uh, on, on people to, to do uh, basic tasks, uh, I'm, I'm almost up for anything. So I love that side of it as well. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Probably own a car dealership and um, selling cars. I think that it's uh, super attractive. I think that it's only gotten more uh, innovative and uh, I love to see what's going on in the space. I think it's amazing. So what brand would you pick for your dealership? If I was picking a singular brand, it would be Porsche. I think that they, you know, laterally have the best product mix across the board. Uh, I think that they also, you know, strike that sweet spot of being reliable and, and presenting good value, although their products are quite expensive now. But, you know, they, they've, uh, they've answered um, the entry level side of things pretty pretty strongly uh, in with the McCann. Um, they've entered into the electrification world uh, very um, you know admirably, uh, and I think that uh, I, I think that they still have some surprises left up their sleeve. And I love the ownership group. Here's an interesting fact about Porsche. I don't know if this still holds true today, but we're going back about twenty years with this story. My friends and I were at Mosport for the American Le Mans series race. I think it was in 2002. And one of my friends was going through a Datsun phase. And we were talking to a couple of guys there that had Porsches and Datsuns and they would use them for track days. 
And yeah. the Datsun was a far cheaper car to acquire than the Porsches. But when we were talking to them, they said the Porsches were um, far cheaper to maintain. Apparently, when they make the parts, they make sure they're backwards compatible. So there's no shortage of parts for the Porsches over time. Whereas with the Datsun, they were usually on spe special order and you, you had to pay through the nose for them. That's amazing. That's an amazing tidbit. I, I would believe it. You know, that comes into the part sharing. Look at what they've done with Datsun really hasn't. They've, you know, restricted the brand to, um, you know, staying staying to itself. Uh, whereas Porsche, you know, there's there's many cross collabs with with Audi and, and Volkswagen, et cetera, and, and now Lamborghini that they just kind of like, you know, are sharing uh, parts uh, across the board. Ryan, this has been fantastic. We could keep going about cars, but we're going to end it here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Victor. It's been a pleasure. Uh, well, we're going to have to get together and watch uh, some F1 races this year, and, uh, and I'll see you then. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.